Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and dismemberment. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On February 18, 1949, 69-year-old Olive Duran Deacon sat down for breakfast at the Onslow Court Hotel in London, England. The posh building had been her home for the last six years. Olive got on well with the other hotel guests. For the most part, they were all elderly widows with plenty of cash to spare. Olive was no exception. Her husband had been a British military hero, and although he'd passed away more than a decade prior, he'd left her a sizable fortune. Being a wealthy widow made Olive an obvious target for grifters and conmen. She was used to being approached by people who only had eyes for her money. Because of this, she considered herself to be a deft judge of character. But Olive couldn't see through everybody. As she sat sipping her English breakfast tea... She had no idea that a truly conniving person sat in her midst. And she didn't know that her fancy hotel breakfast would be the last meal she'd ever have. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the 1949 murder of Olive Duran Deacon. This week... We'll cover the investigation into her disappearance and find out her killer's identity. Next week, we'll learn more about Olive's murderer and discover how he became one of the most infamous men in 20th century Britain. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. On February 19, 1949, an elderly woman named Constance Lane sat alone in her breakfast table in London's Onslow Court Hotel. She was worried about her friend, 69-year-old Olive Duran Deacon. Olive hadn't been at dinner the previous night, and now she wasn't at breakfast. Constance and Olive were close. They dined together almost every day. Constance knew her friend wouldn't miss two different meals without letting her know beforehand— She was sure that something was wrong. And Lane wasn't alone in her worry. Another resident, 39-year-old John George Haig, sat next to her. He asked if she knew where Olive was. Constance couldn't stand Haig. She'd spoken to him in the past, and he always struck her as a sort of performer, like he was playing a character. Nevertheless, her worry over her friend's disappearance trumped her distaste for the relatively young man. Good morning, Ms. Lane. It's Mrs. Lane. I may be a widow, but I'm still a lady. And a beautiful lady at that. Ever the salesman, Mr. Haig. Business going well? That's what I've come to ask you about. Have you seen Mrs. Duran Deacon? We were supposed to have a business meeting yesterday, but she never showed. I waited a full hour. Seems she stood me up. 
She missed dinner yesterday, and I haven't seen her at breakfast this morning. It's all very unlike her. Really, Mr. Haig, I'm starting to get concerned. Perhaps I should call on her room. Constance went to Olive's room. A maid led her inside. The bed was made, and Olive's nightgown was laid out, clean and unworn. She clearly hadn't slept in her room the previous night. Constance was puzzled. She had no idea where her friend might have gone. Constance passed the information on to Haig. They both agreed that if they didn't hear from Olive by the next day, they'd report her missing. Lo and behold, the following morning, Olive was still nowhere to be found. So on February 20th, 1949, John George Haig and Constance Lane drove to the Chelsea police station to report their friend missing. Sergeant Alexandra Lamborn took their statements. Thank you for the information, Mrs. Lane. I'll be sure to get this report typed up quickly. And you, Mr. Haig, are you also a resident of the hotel? For the past four years. Aren't you a bit young? As I understand it, Onslow Court is something of a retirement home. My old place was bombed during the Blitz. But living in luxury isn't just for the end of your life, you know. I love Onslow Court. Plus, I keep these old gals young. Were you and Mrs. Duran Deacon familiar with one another? Goodness! Considering the age gap, I think that's a terribly indecent thing to imply. I didn't mean romantically, Mr. Haig. Were you close? We were business partners. Well, we would have been if she'd shown up to our meeting. What kind of business were you in together? We were going to manufacture artificial fingernails. Brilliant idea the old biddy had. Cornering a market. I'm a co-director at an engineering company. Though my firm's partner wasn't too keen, I was hoping Mrs. Duran Deacon and I could sell him on the idea together. Though her shift was over, Sergeant Lamborn stayed late. As she typed her report on Olive Duran Deacon's disappearance, she couldn't shake the feeling that something about the situation didn't add up. Lamborn thought there was something off about Mr. Haig. Onslow Court was populated by elderly women. As a middle-aged man, he stuck out like a sore thumb. Lamborn decided it was best to speak with a superior officer, Detective Inspector Shelley Symes, before heading home. Sorry to intrude, sir, but uh, I was hoping we could discuss a new case. No intrusion. My current work seems to be going nowhere. I've just finished a report on a missing person from Onslow Court. Hmm. The wealthy and retired go missing quite often, I presume. Are you sure the old woman isn't off gallivanting up north? Her friend filed the report and said she'd never go off without telling her. But it's the man who accompanied her that has me worried. I think we should run a record check on him. You think some old codger is running a racket in the retirement home? That's just it, sir. He's in his 30s, yet he's living there. He's off. It's mostly widows in that hotel, correct? Yes, sir. Hmm. Yes, that is odd. I'll have someone from record see what they can pull. What's the name? John George Haig. Haig. While she waited on Symes to get Haig's records, Lamborn continued her investigation. The next day, Monday, February 21st, she called hospitals throughout London, wondering if Olive had shown up injured or disoriented. No one had seen the old woman. 
By 10 a.m., Lamborn had made her way to the Onslow Court Hotel. She hadn't called before showing up. She wanted to see how the hotel operated before the residents or staff knew an investigation was taking place. The hotel was busy, full of mostly elderly guests. They watched her every move. It was rare that a police officer would arrive at their home, and it was even rarer for that officer to be a woman. Lamborn spent most of the day gathering information on Olive Duran Deacon and who might try to harm her. She learned that Olive was an elegant, heavyset woman who almost always wore expensive clothes and jewelry. On any given day, her outfit was worth more than the average person's rent. Olive was also known to be extremely punctual and to stick to her routines. The idea that she'd miss an appointment, especially one pertaining to a business venture, was ludicrous. So Sergeant Lamborn met with the hotel's manager, Mrs. Alicia Robbie. Lamborn said she wanted to know more about Olive's daily routines. According to Mrs. Robbie, Olive was a model guest. She paid her bills on time and would always lend a hand to other guests when needed. It was out of character for her to go off, even for a short while without telling staff where she'd be. This was all helpful information, but it wasn't really what Lamborn was looking for. She pressed Mrs. Robbie about the person she found most suspicious, John George Haig. So, uh, Mr. Haig, how did he and Mrs. Duran Deacon get along? They eat together often, and they seem to get along fairly well. I believe they even have a business venture together. Though if she knew what I knew, she'd never go into business with the likes of him. What do you mean? Mr. Haig isn't quite as wealthy as he appears. Just recently, he was a week or so away from being kicked out of the hotel. So he's not really a man of means? I can't say for sure, but there's no odder couple than Olive Duran Deacon and John George Haig. How so? As I said, Olive would give us a heads up even if she were simply planning to miss a meal. Mr. Haig, on the other hand, must be chased after and is often late with his payments. Is he paid up at the moment? He is, as of a few days ago, though, between you and me, he owed us over 50 pounds before he finally paid. Two months' rent. But that's normal. He's often late, then pays in cash after one of his business ventures pays off. But Sergeant Lamborn had a feeling that Haig's supposed business ventures were more sinister than he let on. And as it turned out, she was right. When she returned to the station... She found John George Haig's rap sheet sitting on her desk. The seemingly charming man had a record for fraud, forgery, and theft. Coming up, Chelsea police explore all of Duran Deacon's relationship to John George Haig. Robbing trains, rustling cattle... Pop culture usually depicts the Old West as an uncharted land with no rules. But how much of that is true? Now you can find the facts, learn the lore, and tackle the tallest of tales in the Spotify original from ParCast, Wild Wild West. Every Thursday on Spotify, settle up to the saloon to hear about the American frontier's most ruthless outlaws and heroic gunslingers. 
Wild Wild West features a compilation of episodes from shows across ParCast Network and focuses on the legends that help shape American culture. From sharpshooters and explorers to family feuds and lost treasure, the West has a history more complex than you know. Don't be a yellow belly. Follow Wild Wild West free and only on Spotify. And now back to the story. On February 18, 1949, 69-year-old Olive Duran Deacon disappeared from the Onslow Court Hotel in London, England. Within three days, Sergeant Alexandra Lamborn had set her eyes on a suspect, 39-year-old John George Haig. Detective Inspector Shelley Symes and his partner, Detective Inspector Albert Webb, followed up on the sergeant's investigation. On the afternoon of February 21st, they paid Mr. Haig a visit. They found him having coffee at the Onslow Court Hotel and asked if he could answer some questions about Olive Duran Deacon's disappearance. Are you single, Mr. Haig? I'm happily married. I haven't seen or spoken to my wife in 15 years. <laughs> and where is it that you work again? I'm an engineer and co-director at Hursley Products, LTD. I have a few patents and various inventions. And that's where you plan to take Mrs. Duran Deacon on the afternoon of February 18th? Correct, but she never showed up. I told my partner, Mr. Jones, she'd be joining us. She was supposed to show us some designs for artificial fingernails. When Olive didn't show, I went to the factory alone and told Mr. Jones she'd stood me up. And when you returned to the hotel, did you check on Mrs. Duran Deacon to see why she'd missed your meeting? I had a late dinner and didn't want to disturb her. I came down to the tutor room around 10 p.m. to see if she or Mrs. Lane might be awake, but they weren't around. Fancy cigarette, old chaps? No, thank you. We may call on you again as we investigate further. Feel free, gentlemen. You know where to find me. The officers followed up on Haig's story. They searched the Hursley Products factory, but found no evidence of Olive ever being there. It looked like John George Haig's story checked out, at least on the surface. Next, police interviewed his business partner, Edward Jones. They asked if Edward was aware of John Haig's extensive criminal record. He admitted he knew Haig had a somewhat checkered past. Even so, Edward corroborated Haig's claim that Olive was supposed to meet with him regarding the manufacture of artificial fingernails. Haig had set up the meeting and apologized when the woman never showed up. However, an officer named Sergeant Pat Heslin found some holes in Haig's story during the same interview. Thank you for your time, Mr. Jones. I have just a few more questions. Whatever you need. I just want to be done with all this nonsense. I know John has gotten in some trouble in the past, but he's been a perfect gentleman since I've known him. So he's a co-director in the company? <laughs> co-director? Is that what he told you? John sure does know how to sell himself. He's not a partner in your company. No, no. He's an unofficial representative. We don't even pay him a salary. He just sells our products on commission. Haig called himself a company co-director, but he was nothing more than a salesman. He sold products, and in exchange, Edward Jones allowed him to use the premises for his personal projects. 
And that wasn't the only breakthrough from Edward Jones. Apparently, Haig didn't just work at the Hurstley Products factory. He also used a workshop on Leopold Road in southwest London. Sergeant Heslin wanted to head there right away, but Edward didn't have the keys. Haig did. Nevertheless, the sergeant assured Edward that wouldn't be an issue. The following day, Sergeant Heslin and Edward Jones met at the workshop on Leopold Road. The officer used a crowbar to break the lock and enter the premises. Inside, Heslin found a rubber apron and three large containers filled with liquid. Edward said they held sulfuric acid, which Haig was using on some sort of project. The officer also found a leather briefcase with the letter H embroidered on it. Heslin knew that the H likely stood for Haig, but it was locked, and the sergeant decided against breaking it open without a warrant. Heslin told Edward to meet him back at the workshop after lunch. In the meantime, the sergeant returned to the station and got a set of skeleton keys. That way he could open the briefcase without suspicion. Inside the case, the officer found passports, ration cards, and bank books in the names of McSwan and Henderson. Edward had no idea who those people were. And that wasn't even the strangest discovery. The briefcase also held a revolver, bullets, and a cleaning receipt for a woman's Persian lamb coat. The same kind of coat Olive Duran Deacon was last seen wearing. It seemed police were narrowing in on the information they needed. And as luck would have it, officers soon got a huge break in the case. Not through police work, but through the press. John George Haig had been interviewed by journalists at Onslow Court a few days prior. His picture was plastered all over town, and it caught the eye of a man named Horace Bull. Horace was a jeweler from a nearby town. One morning, as he sat down to read the Sunday paper, he saw a photo of Olive and all the jewelry she'd been wearing when she disappeared. Without missing a beat, Horace called the police. Detective Inspector Syme speaking. Yes, hello. My name is Horace Bull. I believe I have information on the missing person. Mrs. Um, Olive Durand-Deacon. What can you tell me? Well, I run a jewelry store, and I believe her valuables were brought in for evaluation at my shop. Hmm. Do you still have the pieces? I do. I just purchased them from a man named McLean. McLean? Do you have an address for him? That's just it, Inspector. I don't believe he gave me a real address or a real name. And what makes you say that? Because his picture is on the front page of the paper, and they're calling him... John George Haig! With the information and the jewelry obtained from Horace Bull, the Chelsea police had more than enough evidence to tie John George Haig to the disappearance of Olive Duran Deacon. Detective Inspector Webb searched for Haig at Onslow Court the next day. Webb found him sitting in his car and casually asked him to come to the station for a few more questions. Unaware that anything was out of the ordinary, Haig acted happy to help. He was taken into an interrogation room where, once again, he was interviewed by Inspectors Symes and Webb. Mr. Haig, do you know anything about a Persian lamb coat at a dry cleaner's in Rygate? Should I? 
Seeing as that you've been there the last four mornings, I should say so. <laughs> I see you've been doing your homework, Inspector. Hats off. Yes, the coat belonged to Mrs. Durand Deacon. I take it you also know about the jewelry I sold in Horsham? We had a little discussion with Mr. Horace Bull, so you must know my next question. How did I come into possession of these items? That's the one. Well, it's quite a long story. Would you care for a cigarette? Just answers to my questions, if you don't mind. Tis a mighty fine story. Blackmail and all that. I'll have to implicate some others. Hold that thought. I'll be right back. Tell me, Webb, old boy, what are the chances of one being released from an insane asylum? One like Broadmoor? I can't discuss any of that with you. Let's wait until Inspector Symes returns. No matter. The old lady is gone forever. What do you mean? I've turned her into sludge. Her body is gone, and as such, her murder can never be proven. <laughs> Coming up, John George Haig confesses to far more than one murder. And now back to the story. On February 28, 1949, 39-year-old John George Haig confessed to the murder of 69-year-old Olive Duran Deacon. While one officer, Inspector Symes, was out of the room, Hake told Inspector Webb that he dissolved Olive's body in sulfuric acid. When Inspector Symes returned, Hague kept on talking. He spoke with the confidence of a man who truly believed he could not be convicted for his crime. So, Webb tells me you dissolved Mrs. Duran Deacon in acid. Webb, old boy, I told you that in confidence. If you can't trust an officer of the law, who can you trust? All in good fun, Inspector. Yes, it's true. I destroyed the woman in acid. And how did you go about that? Uh, I took Mrs. Duran Deacon down to the workshop under the pretense of our artificial fingernails deal. I shot her in the head, then ran out to get a drinking glass from my car. Uh, I took a penknife, cut her throat, filled the glass, and consumed her blood. You what? Uh, I drank her blood. After that, I removed the valuable items, put the old gal in the drum, filled it with acid, and let her cook. Oh, then I went out for a spot of tea. Any chance we could get a cup now? I'll have that cigarette now, if you don't mind. The officers couldn't believe it. Haig openly admitted to killing Olive, dissolving her body in acid, and even drinking her blood. By the time Haig finished his statement, the inspectors had both taken him up on his cigarette offer. While they sat smoking... Inspector Symes brought up the passports they'd found in Haig's briefcase. Haig smiled and said that that was another story entirely. Though the officers were tired, they decided it was best to listen to another one of the man's horrible tales. Haig told the officers that he had another location, a workshop at Gloucester Road in London. He preferred that building because it had a storm drain that he dumped his victims down after they dissolved. In 1944, five years prior, Haig had killed a man named William Donald McSwan and dissolved his body in acid. The next year, he did the same to both of McSwan's parents. 
He also admitted to killing a man named Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife Rosalie the same way in 1948. Haig claimed he killed his victims, drank their blood, and dissolved them all in sulfuric acid. He said he killed them for the money. Upon their deaths, he took control of their properties in order to finance a lavish lifestyle. His business ventures were clearly much more criminal than he'd let on. And yet, even as he admitted to so many horrifying crimes, John George Haig remained remarkably composed. His charisma never wavered. Chelsea police couldn't help but worry that Haig might come off as very convincing in court. So they needed to find irrefutable evidence of his crimes. This task was difficult, considering none of his victims' bodies remained in one solid piece. But they could still look for forensic evidence. At Haig's workshop on Leopold Road, they found a stained pink handbag, some bone fragments and what appeared to be a lump of fat. There was also a penknife in Haig's car, the same kind he claimed he used to cut Olive's throat. The knife was covered in dried blood. With this, the police could officially charge John George Haig with the murder of Olive Duran Deacon. He was placed in a holding cell to await trial. But Haig wasn't exactly isolated in prison. The following Friday, March 4, 1949, he received a letter from S.W. Summerfield from a paper called News of the World. Haig's arrest had resulted in countless sensational headlines. For journalists, there was serious money on the line. News of the World wanted exclusive rights to Haig's life story. They were even willing to pay his legal fees thereby helping his case to get them. After receiving the letter, Haig met with Detective Inspector Webb. Inspector, old boy, pleasure seeing you. Can I have the help get you a cup of tea? No, thank you. I'm quite all right. It's nice to see you in good spirits. (laughs) I'm busier here than I was on the outside. I've got another appointment after lunch once we're through. Uh, Just saw my girlfriend Barbara. She's not taking it well. Poor gal. That's to be expected. Have you hired a lawyer yet, John? I have to remind you again, anything you say here is on record. I'll have that all sorted after lunch. I actually have a question for you. What do you think my chances of getting into an asylum like Broadmoor might be? That's really up to you. Exactly why you need to hire a lawyer. (laughs) And here I thought drinking my victim's blood would be more than enough to prove insanity. Only a doctor can help you with that. As a fellow who's given testimony at many hearings, Yellow Lees is his name. When you get a lawyer, have them reach out to him. Much obliged, old chap. The information I gave you, it's all panned out, I presume? The evidence we found seems to match what you've told us, yes. As it should. Now, let me give you the scoop on the others. The others? You didn't think it was just those six, did you, old boy? The blood habit is hard to kick once you get started. Worse than these cigarettes, I'd say. Haig claimed that he had three more victims, though he couldn't remember their names. All he said was he disposed of them the same way he did the others. John Haig's next visitor arrived later that afternoon. S.W. Summerfield, the reporter who'd offered to pay Haig's legal fees, was there to offer the killer a chance at freedom. Nice to finally meet you, Mr. Haig. You're the talk of the town, you know. Must be a slow news day. Well, 
Let me tell you why I'm here. We at News of the World don't want to risk your fate to overworked and underfunded lawyers. We'd like to make sure you have a robust defense. Quite kind of you, old chap. Now, one criminal to another. What's the catch? <laughs> You're as charming as they say. And that's what's in it for me. You. Your life story, to be precise. Mm. What do you want to know? Everything. Childhood, parents, how they brought you up, how you became a killer, who your victims were and why you off them. I hear you're a religious man. Is that right? In a manner. My parents were Plymouth Brethren. Obviously, we wouldn't run the story until after the trial. Hopefully, you'll be able to read the article from a secure room in Broadmoor. John George Hague. Dracula Reborn. That would sell quite a few papers. Haig agreed to let News of the World have the rights to his life story. Now that the investigation was over and the trial was about to begin, it was time for the British public to learn who the real John George Haig was. With News of the World funding Haig's defense and an insanity plea looming, the Chelsea police would have to make sure their case was airtight. If not, they risked a serial killer walking free. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of Olive Duran Deacon's story. We'll see how tabloid journalism sensationalized John George Haig's trial and led him to become one of the most well-known killers in British history. For more information on the murder of Olive Duran Deacon, amongst the many sources we used, we found the acid bath murders, the trials and liquidations of John George Haig by Gordon Lowe, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Kevin P. Regan, with writing assistance by Karis Allen and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Cameron Nicod, Rebecca Thomas, and Jen Wong. Solved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hey, partners, it's Carter from Parcast. You've probably heard stories about outlaw Jesse James, sharpshooter Annie Oakley, and the horrors of the Donner Party. But how much of what you've heard is actually true? Find out on my new series, Wild Wild West, where I head out on the frontier to find the facts, learn the lore, and tackle the tallest of tales. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Wild Wild West, every Thursday, free, and only on Spotify. <laughs>